Good morning, everyone. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Romans. And our passage this morning is chapter 3 on pages 1130. So we're going to look at the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3. Last week and this week, our passages present the Apostle Paul's teaching that God's condemnation will come against unfaithful Jews. Phil, as he spoke last week, highlighted how the Jews would be condemned because of their hypocrisy. And they would be condemned because of their trust in rites, the teaching of the law, in circumcision. Yes, they had the law. And they would use it to guide those they saw as blind. To give light to those they saw as being in darkness. To bring instruction to those they saw as being foolish. Yes, they had the knowledge and the truth. But the very things they taught, they did not live out themselves. They were living as hypocrites. Then they had circumcision. They had been physically circumcised to show that they were Jews. To show that they were God's people. But they didn't live as God's people. Their bodies had been changed, but their hearts hadn't. And because of these things, they faced God's condemnation. Phil summarized last week's passage with a helpful principle. Being right with God is not about a relationship with the law. It's about a relationship with God. He said too, we need God's way to be right with God. In our eight verses this morning, we see the Jews condemned this time because of their unbelief. And we think about the application of that to our own lives too. So let's read together. I'm going to start at verse 28 of chapter 2. A couple of verses back. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, 
How could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let's do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Chapter 2 concludes by saying that a Jew is not a true Jew if his life denies his true status. If his life is simply outward, outwardly looks the part, but inwardly his heart is far from God. Yes, he may be physically tough circumstances. He's ticked that box, but his heart is uncircumstanced, uncircumcised. His heart is far from God. That person wears the cloak of a Jew, but does not live life as a true Jew. Is it possible that that can be true for a Christian too? That we wear the cloak of a Christian, but don't live a true Christian life. For you and me, it's not the outward that matters, but what's happening within Do we have circumcised hearts? Hearts that have been transformed by God? Hearts that truly love God? Hearts that live in obedience to God? Those are questions we need to ask ourselves. We need to examine ourselves before God. Is what's on the outside a true reflection of what's inside? Think of a tapestry. It looks great on the visible side, but on the the unseen side, it's a mess. Is that a picture of my life or yours? It looks great from the outside, but we know that's not how it truly is. You and I can hide the reality of our lives from others, but we can't hide it from God. We need to be real with God. We need to be open with God. Quick to bring our failings to him. Quick to ask him to restore us when we fall. To forgive us when we sin. Quick to listen to those inner promptings of the Holy Spirit. And when we do, we can look at that tapestry in a different way. Now it becomes an unfinished tapestry. And we realize that intricate, seemingly messy workings on the back are actually producing something of beauty on the front. You and I are a work in progress. And God is the master craftsman. And he's changing our hearts into his likeness. So the first lesson of this passage, may I suggest, is to let God transform our hearts so inwardly we live the part and outwardly reflect the character of Jesus let's look at verses 1 and 2 let me read them again what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision much in every way first of all the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God 
These verses are looking back to chapter 2. There we see the Jews condemned for their hypocrisy, for the value they placed on the outward rites. And that raises this question in the readers' minds. What advantage then is there being a Jew? And the response is an exclamation. Much in every way. It's as if Paul is saying, listen up. This is really important. And he says, first of all, or supremely, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. That's a wow. That's awesome. They have the Old Testament. They have God's promises. The promises God made to Abraham and to his line. The Jews were in an incredibly privileged position. And yet they failed to live up to God's standards. Psalm 16 says he had made known to them the path of life, the path of God's blessing. And yet they chose their own path. And they ignored the path of life. And they forfeited God's blessing. How does this speak into our hearts? How does God reveal himself to us. God reveals himself through his creation. All of God's creation speaks of his majesty and power. It reveals God's amazing beauty. It's a visual aid saying, this is who I am. Every bird song, the unique fragrance of every flower, the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset, It all proclaims who God is. And this alone should be sufficient for mankind to respond to God. In an earlier study in Romans 1, we read, since what may be known about God is made plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so that people are without excuse. God speaks through his creation, but he speaks through, too, through his word. The Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God, but we, too, have been entrusted with the very words of God. His living word, the Bible, And for you and me, this is a living word. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read, All scripture is God-breathed. And Hebrews 4 says, The word of God is living and active. To you and me, it's also a life-transforming word. Romans 12 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. It's as we read God's word. It's as we feed on God's word. Then our minds are renewed. But to you and me, the Bible is also a saving word. Paul writes in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God 
that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The Jews had been given the very words of God, but they chose to ignore them. How about you and me? We have been given the very words of God too. What will we do with them? Here's a challenge. To let God transform our minds as we feed on his word, as we read it each day, as we allow it to change our lives, because it's a living word. It's a life-transforming word. It's a saving word. Let's, let's read again from verse 3 as the passage continues. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's, if our unrighteousness brings out God's God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, if that were so, how could God judge the world? And here a big question is raised. Can God keep his promises to the Jews and yet at the same time bring judgment on them? Yes, God's promises are certain. Yes, Abraham's seed would inherit the world. Yet those promises were also conditional. God's people needed to be faithful to God. That was their side of the covenant. God displayed his faithfulness in total loyalty to his people. And the response God looked for was their total loyalty to him. Like the vows made in a marriage ceremony. A total commitment to each other. And here God was looking for that same faithfulness, that same commitment, his people believing his promises and then walking in his ways in obedience to him. But the Jews did not keep their side of the covenant. And these are the issues that Paul is challenging the Jews over. Look at verse 3. It says, What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And this brings another of Paul's exclamations where he says, not at all. Paul says, never mind some being unfaithful, even if every man was a liar, every man being untrue to God's promises, every man not showing God loyalty, every man continuing to live in sin. God would still be true to his promises and true to his word. Then in verse 4, Paul quotes Psalm 51. That's where King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And as a result of that, he's consumed with his guilt and his sin. And he cries out to God, Against you only have I sinned. And David acknowledges God's right to judge him 
and condemn him for the wrong in his life. And Paul uses this quote to highlight the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is displayed as he blesses his people when they are faithful, yet judges them when they are not, as displayed in David's life. Verse 5, Paul continues to contend with his Jewish readers. The Jews say, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And verse 6 brings another exclamation. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? But the point Paul makes is that God will judge the world. And that judgment will include unfaithful Jews. Let's check out our last two verses, verses 7 and 8. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result Their condemnation is just. These last two verses point to a totally wrong assumption on the part of the Jews. Here's their argument. If my failings, if my sinfulness, if going my own way, if living my life apart from God, if all of these things serve to throw a spotlight on God's holiness and righteousness, then surely the wrong in my life has highlighted God's righteousness more clearly and therefore brings glory to God. Then surely God can't condemn me for that. I wonder if you've ever watched Match of the Day and you've seen that that blatant foul or tugging back on the uh, opponent's jacket. Then the whistle blows. And he raises his hands in disbelief. What me, ref? I'm not to blame. None of us like to face up to sin, do we? Every so often, Katie and I have a, a blitz on the house. Quite often, actually. And I'm generally the hooverer. And I particularly like to target the cobwebs. I never quite understand how they get there, but I want to get them. So I switch on the lights so I can see them. And the cobwebs may well say, that's not fair! But to me, the cobwebs spoil It's the same with sin. Sin spoils. The cobwebs may say, we don't care. And sin may say, I don't care. But I care about the cobwebs and I want to deal with them. And God cares about sin and he will deal with it. 
the sin in the lives of those Paul was writing to, the sin in my life and the sin in your life too. I wonder if we ever make excuses for our sins. Maybe we say to ourselves, I've done my bit. I go to church. I've been christened or baptized. I know my Bible pretty well and, and I read it sometimes. Surely that's sufficient? Yes, I have a few failings, but but don't we all? Surely God will understand that? Is that true? The answer is no. It's important we understand the seriousness of sin. It has potential to cut us off from God. The character of the God we worship is holy. And God's holiness and our sin are like poles of a magnet. God's holiness will repel our sin. Consider the cross, the place where Jesus died, taking on himself the sin of the world. And as he did so, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus took my sin and your sin upon himself, As Jesus became the sin-bearer, a holy God turned away. A holy God had to forsake his own son. That's the impact of sin. So we need to take it seriously. In our passage, we see the Jews making these crazy excuses. So let's learn from that. Let's face up to sin. Let's deal with sin. How do we do that? It's only through Jesus that sin can be totally removed. David cried out to God in Psalm 51, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right and steadfast spirit within me. And that's what God did for David. There's a verse full of hope in in 1 John. It says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the power of God's word. So my final point is, let God transform our lives. I wonder if you've taken note of the the reality check on BBC News. You see all the different parties stating their views, and then Laura Kunzberg and Norman Smith have added their observations. And then comes the reality check man, Chris Norris. And in simple terms, he summarizes all that's been said. And if we were to take a reality check of last week and this, what would it be? Maybe simply that God's justice is as real as his love. We see that in family life. It involves both love and justice. Without discipline, a child will develop without boundaries, without direction, without role models. We see the wisdom of love and justice in the context of family life. 
Our passage closes saying of the Jews, their condemnation is just. But God's love is as real as his justice. If we choose to reject Jesus, then like the Jews, we face a just condemnation. But if we choose to embrace God's love, if we come to Jesus and seek the forgiveness and cleansing and inner transformation that only he can give, then we are taken from death to life, from darkness to light, from no hope to a glorious hope, living with Jesus now and for all eternity. What did Phil say last week? We need God's way to be right with God. So let's choose that way. Let God transform our hearts. Let God transform our minds through his living word, through his life-transforming word, through his saving word. And let God transform our lives too. Amen.